This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. It's with a great deal of pleasure on behalf of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute that we present to our campus and to our television audience Oscar Schindler's kid, our distinguished lecturer, Leon Layson. So I'm going to tell you about my family and how it affected us and, uh, and myself and how we survived the war and how we got on Schindler's list. The odds that that would have happened are so enormous against it. Uh, you can imagine we came, as you know, from, a, from Narevka, and that's a small town in, in northeastern Poland. Tiny town. It's very similar to what you might say, think of a, uh, some a little town like um, the, well, an example might be the fiddler on the roof without the Hollywood stuff, you know. You know, with, you know, horse and buggy, no running water, just people living, working hard and, and trying to make a living. Came from that kind of a small town. There were only a thousand Jews, and maybe a thousand non-Christians you know, or various denominations. And we lived in more or less harmony, sometimes with a little friction during my period of time. But anyway, so coming from a town like that, coming to Krakow, and then have somebody like uh, Oskar Schindler come from Sudetenland to Krakow. And we met there. And as a result of that, we survived the war. Those odds are enormous. So here's how it went. Uh, my father came to Krakow first because he hit the company that he worked, where he worked, uh, moved the company from, from Narevka to Krakow. So he, as a young man in his 30s, uh, found this to be a, a real advancement to go to a large city from a small, dinky little town. No, you know, no future kind of town. And um, came to Krakow, and once he established himself, he brought the rest of the family. So in my family, there were four boys and a and a girl. We had, my parents had two boys, then they had a girl, then they had two more boys, and I was the last one. They quit. They didn't want to take any more chances when I was born. <laughs> so, you know, somebody like me came out there with big ears and said, oh, no. <laughs> and so it, it took some time. My father was in Krakow for some time, actually for the first few years that he was there. As a child, I remember him coming to coming home on, on leave, and that was a big holiday, you know. The, my father came, my mother would have a little extra chicken on the table and a few more eggs at breakfast, you know, and it was, you know, it was really a, a thing to look forward to. He did always bring some presents for us and and so finally, he, of course, decided that uh, it's time to uh, unite the family and uh, 
he brought us, brought us to Krakow. So when I came to Krakow as a nine-year-old, uh, it was like coming to Disneyland, you know? Uh, the whole city, it is a beautiful city. It had lots of parks and monuments and uh, big stores. Streetcars running down the middle of the street. I mean, those things were like, I was really interested in those because they were these things that ran without being drawn by horses, you know. It was wondrous. Once I got some, I must tell you, once I got some friends, uh, we used to play games on these streetcars. They were like the kind, they looked like the cable cars in, in uh, San Francisco, you know, they had platforms on either end, and so we'd get on one, one side as far away from the conductor as possible and go a couple of stops, and when he got really close, we'd get off and get on the other end and go another few stops to see how far we can go without paying. <laughs> you know, it's probably, it was like five groceries or something. <laughs> anyway, it, this is the kind of life it was in the first year after we came to Krakow, it was, we went to school and we start to uh, learn about the city and then um, the war began. Nazis invaded Poland and uh, my oldest brother who was 19 at the time escaped the Nazi invasion and ran east, naturally, where we came from and ended up Outrunning, it's very, it wasn't easy to outrun the panzers. They came through Poland in several weeks. They, were, they conquered the country. But they uh, had an agreement with the Soviet Union. Soviet Union occupied uh, the eastern part of Poland. That part of Poland was uh, where we came from was occupied by the Soviets. So my, my oldest brother actually escaped the Nazis and ended up on the Soviet side in in Narevka with his grandparents. So for the first two years, uh, he was really better off than we were because on our side where we were, uh, the Nazis began their campaign against the Jewish people with a whole series of restrictions. You know, people wonder now how it was that people, uh, having gone through all these uh, persecutions, didn't escape, didn't go someplace or run away, or go hide. I, I assure you, there was nowhere to go, and nowhere to hide. And there was not one country in the world that announced that all those Jews who are being persecuted in Germany are welcome to come. We have our borders open. Please come and uh, you know, escape. That did not happen. And besides that, you have to remember that leaving your home is not that easy. You know, what do you take if you're going to leave your home? And so my brother escaped, and as I said, he was there for uh, the first two years, and then the Nazis broke their agreement with the Soviet Union and invaded the rest of Eastern Europe and Russia and ended up near Stalingrad and, and Moscow, you know, overran that area very quickly, and right behind those invading armies in 1941 came 
a group of a battalion of soldiers, several battalions of soldiers who had an assignment to find Jews who lived in these small towns in those areas where we lived. That area, as a matter, by the way, uh, some of you probably know, it's called the um, Pale of Settlement. That means where the Jews were allowed to settle. God forbid they would settle in big cities. You know, they were not allowed, so they settled in small towns. You know, that's why there were so many small towns in Eastern Europe, in, in Eastern Poland, and Russia, and Ukraine. And so this was the Pale of Settlement. And, and they, they roamed that area, these, these battalions of soldiers. Their assignment was to find Jews who lived those, in those towns and murder them. Imagine, you know, I mean, it, it, I say that and then, and then I think about how easy it is just to say that. But to understand it, there's, I don't think you can. So these soldiers, these, these, this battalion, one of the battalion of soldiers came to my hometown two months after the second invasion, surrounded the town, drove the Jewish people out of their homes down to the edge of the forest. That way it was located near a forest. The, the source of Polish pride, Pusza Białowieska is a very important part of Polish uh, pride, the, the forest. They drove them down to the edge of the forest, murdered the men that day, buried them in a common grave. Women and children were held for several more days in a barn, and um, they too were murdered. So as a result of this action of this, this one battalion of soldiers, that one day, everyone who was related to me in Poland, including my oldest brother, was murdered. In the meantime, to get back to Krakow, they began their campaign, and as, you, as I began to tell you, you know, you wonder why people stayed and allowed themselves to be persecuted like that. So we had no choice. And besides that, my parents, people my parents' age, remembered the Germans from World War I. And they expected them to be the same. You know, it's 25 years, you know, World War I, the Germans came, invaded Poland, they stayed there for four years, and they, then they left, and everything went back to normal, and... Uh, they expected these Germans to be the same. So here come the Germans again, one more time, invaded Poland again. And uh, they began their sort of their campaign against the Jews, which we know now in retrospect, but at the time it was just some inconvenience of, that you should experience during wartime. Uh, the soldiers uh, were picking on Jews and beating them up and making them do menial tasks on the roads and um, cutting their beards if they had a, if they were wearing beards. Krakow had uh, as many non Jews who were not bearded as many as they had bearded. So you know, if, when they did find somebody who was wearing a beard, and they would 
just enjoy themselves. And it seemed as if that was the case, but it wasn't. It was just this gradual uh, marginalization of the Jews. And so I'm going to tell you a couple of uh, uh, restrictions that they announced to, in Krakow. It said things like, Jews who go to the parks are not permitted to sit on the benches. And this is, this is an official order. It was plastered, you know, signs plastered all over the city. It said, Jews are not, not supposed to sit on the benches. By, you know, with the Nazis, everything was the strictest penalty, you know, like Todesstrafe, you know, like. And so um, that was, nobody paid any attention to that, especially me, somebody 10 years old. There's no way, you know, I didn't have a beard. They couldn't tell if I was uh, Jews or non-Jew. But besides that, I didn't care whether I sat on the bench or not. And then after that, uh, soon after that, they announced again another, another restriction. Jews are not permitted to go to the parks. My favorite streetcars. The Jews were not allowed to take public transportation. So, uh, but at first they could. As to show you just how gradual this, all this was. At first they had a, a rope strung right through the middle of the streetcar. And Jews had to get in the back platform and the non-Jews in the front. So now if I wanted to play this old game, I couldn't do that because there's a rope stretched across the middle. And, you know, I, I, have, I really have to, I have to tell you this. It, it's, it's just a way of, of marginalizing people, of, of putting people down. It has nothing to do with going someplace. You know, when I, when I was here the first two years in this country, all I did was I went to school to learn English. I went to school to learn my, my trade, to convert my trade to the American system. Because by that time I was a pretty good machinist, you know, so I wanted to be able to get a job and better, better pay. And uh, so I was going to school, going to work, going to school, going to work. So I never, I never had a car. I just used public transportation all the time. And so uh, I was used to uh, getting in the back of the bus on the way home at midnight and the bus driver would know when I was supposed to get off, so he would just wake me up. You know, I'd go to sleep. I'd wake, he'd wake me up and say, Leon, you get off here. That's your, your stop, Melrose and Western. You get off here. So uh, this was routine. Uh, a little bit less than two years after I came to this country, I was drafted in the Army, and I had to went into basic training. So part of my basic training was in... Aberdeen, Maryland, because I was a machinist and they wanted me to be in, or, in ordnance. So I was in ordnance training for a while. Then I was transferred to engineering, and so I was an army engineer, so basic training. That part of basic training was in Atlanta, Georgia. It was in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta General Depot, outside of the city. And um, I was sent there because I, I I'm new, I was pretty new here. I knew a little bit about the South and the North and these kind of things. And um, So after a few, about two or three weeks of uh, training, 
Uh, they gave us passes to go into town. They gave us a three-day pass. You know. So, uh, you know, this time I'm not Little Lason. I'm private first class Leon Lason with the brass shined and my belt buckle shined. I'm going into town, you know, I'm going to go see a movie or something. Anyway, he, um, I got, they provided transportation. So I got in the bus, got in the back, just my, my, my habit, sat down, and went about sort of a few yards. The bus driver stopped the bus, came over to me and said, you can't sit here. You have to go sit in the front. This is reserved for blacks. He was telling me that. I, I'm telling you, this is, it, it is just, I didn't know the term then, but I, I know it now. It just blew my mind to, he, to hear something like that. It wasn't all that long ago that I had to sit in the back and somebody else in the front. Now I have to sit in the front, somebody else in the back. As far as going someplace, it means it, it's, there's no difference. And there's, if you want to sit in the back is one thing. But if you have to sit in the back, it's something else again, altogether. Because that, there's, that's a pur- there's a purpose in that. And so the Nazis do that very well, knew how to do this. Anyway, uh, then after a while, the, the bus, the streetcar, uh, the rope was taken down, and Jews were not allowed to take public transportation altogether. It's just gradually... Uh, the, they tightened up the, the screws. And even more, and we have to provide uh, free labor, and my family, every family, Jewish family, had to provide free labor. We'd go chop ice on the streets and shovel snow and things like that. So I would go out and shovel snow and chop ice so that my father wouldn't have to go. So you know, my age, you know, it's tough. And that continued... Uh, uh, Eventually, uh, they, you know, established a ghetto in Krakow, and they forced all the Jews to go live there. But be, right after the, uh, go back to the first to the original invasion. Right after the invasion, uh, young people, young officers came to the to Poland to make their fortune because the, the Jewish property was being confiscated and given to those people who were deserving in the eyes of the Nazis. And um, Poland was a good place to come to make your fortune because uh, it was there for the the taking. And so uh, one of those people who came to Poland to make money was Oskar Schindler. When Oskar Schindler came to to, to, uh, Krakow, uh, he took over this factory, as you know, this enamel factory. It made uh, it was a dinky little a Jewish-owned little factory that made pots and pans, enamel works. Uh, you know, my my mother-in-law used to call that kind of uh, kitchenware guaranteed to chip. <laughs> and and so when Schindler took it over, he immediately added another another line of work which was war-related and began to hire Jewish workers. 
Well, he needed craftsmen like my my father, who lost his job in his factory where he worked. The reason why he came to Krakow. And when Schindler found out about him, he hired him. So actually, my father was one of the first Jews that Schindler hired, and eventually hired more and more people, which is profitable, because he didn't have to pay us. But when the ghetto was uh, established, and we were all forced to go live in the ghetto, there was an advantage in having a job in Schindler's company, or in a company like Schindler's, because we could get a permit to go to work. So actually could get a permit to leave the ghetto and then come back. So um, my father would uh, leave the ghetto, go to work, and on the way home, he would bring little pieces of food in his pockets because the, the amount of food that they allowed in was so small Shortages of food began in Poland all, or, all over, but especially in the ghetto. So my father used to bring in little pieces of food in his pockets periodically. He gave, you know, he's, he's left some of his possessions, his suits, with one of his buddies, and he asked them to exchange it for food some, and periodically brought it in his pockets. And that's just how we kind of survived during that period of time in the, in the ghetto. Uh, eventually, uh, Schindler was hiring more people from the ghetto at this point, and so my father asked him to add my brother, who was uh, just about a little over a year and a half older than I, and he too went to work in Schindler's company, and he too was able to bring in a little something in his pockets. This is how we sur- kept surviving day by day. My memory of the ghetto was that I was hungry all the time. I was never not hungry and always frightened. Because as you know, uh, the Nazis declared themselves the master race, and the Jews were non-human. They had this graduated scale downward. You know, nobody was equal to a Nazi, but uh, the Jews were way on the bottom. Um, to be disposed of, actually. At that point, we still didn't know what their final solution was going to be. Even when the ghetto was started, even when the ghetto was created, the people in, inside the ghetto, and as I say, I was taking cues from adults, they were saying things like, well, you know, uh, if that's the worst thing that can happen, we can live with that, the worst is going to be over, and then everything is going to go back to normal. No one, no one in his right mind could have predicted that a nation of philosophers and a, nation, a civilized country like Germany in the middle of Europe with great universities and uh, science and you know, composers would, would sink to the level that they would des- could decide that it was okay to murder a whole group of people, not for what they did, but for who they were. Basically, because they prayed in a different language, maybe, or something. Now, that's 
not to be understood. Somebody, anybody who can understand that, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. There's anybody that could. There's no way to understand it. And so we, nobody could have predicted it. And so, um, the ghetto time, the ghetto time was just a, a place of insanity. You know, my life was in in jeopardy all the time. You know, I was shot at a couple of times. I was, uh, and I was always hungry. And was frightened because people were being killed on the streets. And so, uh, you know, to the to the Nazis, we were the Jews. We were not anything except the Jews uh, in there with Nazi uh, eyes. But if one looked at us, you know, from a distance with normal eyes, one could see that we were not the Jews. We were there. The all kinds of people were there. There were smart people and dumb people. There were professors and lawyers and uh, educators and you know clergy and uh, all kinds of people. People with talent uh, who were in the arts. I mean, just different kind of people. There were rich people and poor people, even in the ghetto. So those people who were a little bit better off in the uh, before the war were a little bit better off while we were in the ghetto. So. Above, above us in the same building lived a family. And before the war, they were a little better off. They had a little cushion. So uh, in my father's case, you know, he was working and he had a little savings account. And that disappeared right away. So all he had was his skills. Anyway, this woman would periodically call me and ask me to run an errand. You know, I don't know if she really needed the errand, but she... I found an excuse to call me upstairs afterwards, and uh, she would take out a, a loaf of bread, something that I could only dream about, and cut a big, thick slice of it, and then spread butter on it, nice and thick, and then she'd give that to me, and I'd take it, run downstairs, and give it to my mother, and she would then cut it into thinner slices, scrape the butter off, and spread it on the other pieces, and we all shared, and that was that was a good day. Well, the Nazis did not take a, put us in the ghetto just to isolate us from the rest of the population, as some people assumed. And they began because they've been roaming around the eastern part of Poland and. and the eastern part of Europe, and shooting people at the time, as you, as I described earlier, it became a little bit too slow for them. They just thought maybe with good science and good uh, German technology, they developed ways of murdering people en masse. At that point, they uh, uh, established a series of death camps all around Poland, and began to transport people out of the ghetto, out of these ghettos, directly to the gas chambers. And so when the first transport was formed, I must tell you that the first transport was formed, the, the, the Nazis announced that um, they, there would be a transport, and people could get on it if they wanted to. Uh, they'll then be taken to the countryside, but they would have fresh air, they had jobs, and at the same time, 
alleviate the, the congestion in the ghetto, which made very good sense. You know, we were really jammed in to, in a small area. You know, when the ghetto was created, the Christian population had to move out and Jews had to move in. And the number of Jews that moved into that same area were about three times as many as the ones that lived there before. So we were really jammed in. We had a family couple that from, came from Germany originally and then ended up in the ghetto. and she, They lived with us in the same bedroom. Anyway, so they would alleviate the, the congestion in the ghetto, which made good sense. And so when the first transport left, uh, not, some people went voluntarily. Who wouldn't want to leave this crazy place? This is insanity. And so, but eventually the war came back as to what, where those transports were going. And uh, I think some of you who saw Schindler's List uh, saw a transport like that formed in, in, the, in the movie. By the way, the Spielberg movie was, as far as the events were concerned, are, are true in, in the, way it ha- the way they happened. Um, conversation they had between them, that's something else again. But as far as the events, these were events that people related to them, and they recreated it practically, you know, right on location, as a matter of fact, in Krakow. When I saw the movie, I could almost see my building where I lived. You know, it just uh, makes you freeze. Anyway, they uh, depicted this kind of one a sample of the of a transport. You know, movies can't show you everything. It's still a movie, even though it was pretty accurate. Uh, it lasted uh, three three hours. You know, um, the real thing happened. It lasted a lot longer than that, you know. And so, um, how many of you have seen, actually, Schindler's List? So you you all know my whole story, actually. Anyway, Schindler went to, as you remember, Schindler went to rescue his, uh, his accountant, because by that time he had quite a few people working for him, and his Jewish accountant was rounded up and taken on this uh, transport, and shouldn't have found out about it, so he went to the railroad station to rescue him, and which he did. So in the movie, they, they showed these, uh, where they went up and down the railroad uh, cars and looked, called his name, Stern, Stern, you know, and finally. Schindler found Stern, got him off the train, and Stern survived the war with us at the end on Schindler's list. But as I said, you can't see everything in the movie. What you didn't see was that while Schindler was looking for his accountant, he saw my then second oldest brother, who was with us in the ghetto. He was surrounded up and taken on this same transport. Schindler saw him there, and he offered to get him off the train. And my brother declined to get off because uh, he was there with his girlfriend. And Schindler couldn't get her off. So he decided he would stay with her. They both ended up in Belzitz at the end of the line. Belzitz, a death camp where people from Krakow were taken. 
I just want to tell you this because I want you to understand that these Nazis were not killing numbers. You know, they're not killing millions and they're killing thousands and they're killing hundreds of thousands. They were killing individual people. Somebody's brother, somebody's sister, somebody's uncle and aunt, some children, you know, great parents, great grandparents, I know. It, they were not killing numbers. They were killing individuals. And I think one of the things that uh, the movie Schindler's List uh, made, why it made such an impression is that, uh, you know, it was different from the from the other uh, records in movies and documentaries that we had before on on the Holocaust, where you could see hundreds or thousands of bodies being shoved into a ditch, and you know. Very impersonal. Schindler's uh, movie, the Spielberg's movie, was uh, different. It was focused more on individual people, on faces. So you actually could rec- you could see people, actual people, and that made I think made the whole difference, because before the movie came out, I never spoke about my experiences to anybody, except my immediate family. You know, after, you know, already that I was a teacher for 39 years. You know, but for the first 35 years, nobody knew about my experiences. Nobody knew about what I had experienced during the war. Every once in a while, people would notice that I have an accent. You know, like in the faculty room, somebody would notice and ask me about my accent. And I would always say something like, uh, when they asked me where I was from, I'd say I was from the East. And, <laughs> and they accepted that. Nobody, nobody followed it up. You know, I'm from the East. When they, uh, when they announced that they were going to close the ghetto, they, asked, they told everybody to line up in front of the gate in, in, in order of where they worked, in groups of people uh, where they worked in different factories. They ran these factories in, in, uh, in, inside the ghetto. We manufactured all kinds of things. I was in the, a brush factory by that time. I worked in a brush factory. So I lined up with my brush factory people. And then they were going to escort people, one, one group at a time, under guard to the camp. When my group started to move, when we got about where the gate was and a guard was standing there, he pulled me out and told me that I would come later. Uh, that was not a good thing. And by, by this time, we, pretty, you know, we had a pretty good idea what these people were doing. And, and so my friends and I, who were not allowed out either, they were about my size, uh, we went in the back and huddled up, tried to find out what we should do. They decided they were going to go hide because we'd hidden once before and uh, escaped one of the transports. And this time they were going to hide again. And I decided not to do that. Now, I don't want you to think I was so smart. I saw my mother leave. I was going to be the last one in the ghetto all by myself. I just didn't want to be there by myself. And so I joined another group. They really didn't know whether I belonged to one factory or another. 
And I got pulled out again once or twice, and then one time the guard wasn't looking, and I made it. And my parents were elated that I had made it out of the ghetto into this place of hell. I spent the rest of the year there before I got transferred to Schindler's company. Uh, my sister went to work in a company like Schindler's, and she was transferred out. My, mother, my father and my brother went to live in Schindler's uh, camp because Schindler had, by that time, had quite a few people working for him. And uh, when all his employees were uh, then transferred to Plashov, to the concentration camp, they had to be escorted under guard every day back and forth to, to his company. So he was able to persuade the authorities to let him build a sub-camp right next to the factory, so his employees could live there and go to work and then come back without guards, which he did. He was able to accomplish that. He began to spend some of the money he came to make, which was considerable, because they, you know, he had to bribe quite a few people to allow him to do this. And so um, my father and my brother went to live there, and then my mother and I were the only ones now left in this uh, plush of camp. And, uh, of course, my sister went to live in another camp just like Schindler's. When Schindler was increasing, adding more people to his company, my father asked him to add my mother and me to the list. And he did. Something about, maybe because my father was the first Jewish worker that Schindler hired, or maybe it's because he hired him because of his skill and not for something like uh, maybe a bribe or something like that. Whatever it was, somehow when my father asked him to, for something, he always complied. And uh, so he, he added my mother and me, and then we were on the list to be transferred out of uh, Pashov. But it never, was easy, it never was straight for me. It never was easy for me. You know, I was the most fortunate person on this planet, but I had to be, you know, you have to be unlucky before you know you're lucky, yeah, because my, my name was crossed off the list. Somebody crossed my name off, and so I was already reconciled that, excuse me, that I was not going to go, my mother was going to leave, and now I was going to be left all by myself in, the, in this camp. If that had happened, I would not have survived by myself. And so they had restarted my brush factory, and I was working in the brush factory while they were all getting ready to, to leave. They were lining up in front of the gate, and I snuck away from my job and went to see my mother off. You know, I was just a kid. And something happened, uh, you know, normally if you walked along like this without, with aimless, uh, you know, you get in a lot of trouble. But nobody stopped me, nobody looked, nobody saw me. I kept walking, and finally I got to where they were, they were lining up in front. I could hear them talking. And I can't even tell you how my last few steps I took, I found myself in front of this Nazi officer who was going to escort, in charge of escorting the, this group to, to Schindler's company. And so I told him my name, and... Uh, when I stood in front of him, I could, you know, straight ahead, I looked straight ahead, and I could just see his belt buckle. I mean, he's a you know, nasty-looking guy. 
and told him my name. And then, you know, I'm talking to this person who doesn't even think I'm human. And uh, I'm telling him about my family. You know, like uh, I told him that I was on the list and my name was crossed off. And then uh, my mother is on the list and she's in this group. And not only that, my father and my brother are already there. I told him that. I, I just thought, that is really dumb. You know, even at the time I thought, what am I telling him that for? Anyway, he looked at the list and make a long story short, and he ordered me right into this group. Not speaking complete sentences, you know, just crunch it, you know, like that. And so I jumped in and, you know, it looked like we were standing there for a long time, but it wasn't really long. I could see them, the, the assistant and he were talking about something and I thought maybe they were going to change their mind. Anyway, um, I made it into Sindra's company and I got a job and working on a machine and I used to run a lathe, 12-hour shifts, and uh, life became a little better because we were not harassed all the time. It was still guarded by the same guards. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't exactly a day camp where you went canoeing and riding horses and stuff like that. But it was, uh, <laughs> um, life was less stressful, even though I was always pessimistic about, even on Schindler's list, I was pessimistic. In Schindler's company, I was pessimistic. Because I, I, Schindler did these things, and I thought, well, he could do this, but I bet you he can't do that, because the Nazis were not stupid. They would, you know. But um, he did. And so I was working these 12-hour shifts, and of course, you know about Schindler, he, he liked a good life, so, and also he had these big parties in, in his office, and he used to entertain uh, authorities and big shots, you know, and so that he could then later on ask him for favors. And so um, after they left, sometimes 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, Schindler would come down all by himself, and walked through the factory floor. He had this habit of doing that. He did that all the time. And then he'd uh, stop and talk to people. He'd stop and talk to me sometimes. You know, uh, he didn't really have too much to say to me. I was 13, going on 14. I was standing on a box so I could reach the controls better on the machine. And then he would ask me things, simple things like, uh, you know, how am I doing? Uh, how many pieces I've made? And then, and then he'd just walk on, talk to my brother, talk to my father sometimes, and sometimes he'd leave something on my father's workstation, like a half a pack of cigarettes, which was pretty valuable, you know. You could get a, in those days, a cigarette was a medium of exchange, you know. You could get a slice of bread for, for a cigarette. <laughs> anyway, he did, he did things like that. Like when he's, sometimes when he spoke to me, the next day, when I went to get my ration of food, I'd find out that Schindler left word that I should receive two rations. Imagine that. Uh, this man had a lot, thing, a lot of things on his mind. You know, he was doing like lots of black market business, and he was he had, you know, lots of girlfriends to take care of. And I know <laughs> he he was busy. Uh, and he still had time. Or remember that uh, he saw this kid working that night, 
and he should get two rations of food. He was the most unusual human being. Uh, if you take him within the context of the times, uh, you would have to uh, declare him a true hero because the, the norm was to murder Jews, not to save them. And he undertook, once he discovered what the end result was going to be, what the plans were, he proceeded to uh, work against it until he was able to succeed in saving this 1,200 Jews. Um, it's not like a, being a good CEO and the, you know, today, you know, when you provide good health care for your employees and a good wages and all this kind of stuff. In those days, uh, what he was doing was against the law. What the Nazis were doing was not. There's an upside-down world. Did many, many things. He uh, eventually, of course, when the, when the uh, war was going badly for the Germans on the Eastern Front, the, the Russians were going to be in Krakow soon. Those people who had companies like him uh, send their, their Jewish workers back into uh, Plashruf, into this main concentration camp, which where my sister was working in one of those, she was sent back. And um, more than half of those people did not survive the war. They took their money and ran. Instead, and Schindler instead decided that he would do something different. You know, I, might, I don't mind telling you that when I heard, I heard the rumor that he was going to do this, he was going to have the factory dismantled and transfer it to Czechoslovakia, more or less where he came from, and then take his employees with him. I just did not think he would be able to accomplish that. But as you know, he did, uh, with spending, you know, proceeded to spend a lot more of his money. But during that period of time, just to give you an idea about uh, uh, his character, during that period of time, uh, he couldn't keep all his workers. You know, he, uh, he was having his factory dismantled, and no production was made, it was going on, so he had to give up some of his people, and some people had, been, had to be sent back to the main camp, and some were going to stay to dismantle the factory. So somebody had to make up a list. And that list, I know, was not made by Schindler because my father, my brother, and I were going to be sent away, and my mother was on the list to stay. So when we were all lined up and getting ready to have us escorted out, uh, we were standing there, Schindler came to see who was leaving. And so I used to always line myself up in a fort row just so I would not be conspicuous because I was a little kid. You know, the Nazis didn't have use for little children. And so um, this time, however, I wanted to get Schindler's attention, so I moved out of my row in the back and started to get to the edge of the uh, group so that I could get a better look at Schindler or he'd get a better look at me. And while I was doing that, a guard hit me with his rifle butt and 
I broke a, a thermos bottle I had in my hand that my German friend who used to live with us in the ghetto gave me before they were sent on the, away on the, one of the transports. And so I had it full of water and they hit it and broke it and made a big crash, you know, and everybody's attention was in my direction and Schindler looked and so I called out to him. I told him my father, my brother and I are being sent away. He ordered us out of this group immediately and sent us to join the other group that was staying in a different location. Which was, at this point, uh, he saved our lives. If he hadn't done that, we didn't have a very good chance of surviving. Because those people were sent back, more than half of those people did not survive. It was sent then to Buchenwald, to Mauthausen, you know, walking up and down the, the hillsides with breaking rocks and for the next uh, eight months. There was no way we could have survived. Uh, even on Schindler's List, we would not have survived much longer if the war had lasted much longer. So those of you who are veterans of World War II, thanks. Uh, so um, he took us out of that group and ordered us in. So I, as I said, he saved our lives. And so you think that's a wonderful thing. He did, which is, which is true. But he did something more remarkable that will give you a better idea of what kind of a character, kind of a human being he was. Before we were able to get to, that, to join the group that was staying, he went there first. He found my mother there. She was on the list to stay in the first place. And he told her not to worry that we were coming. Now, I, I know today we would say that's beyond the call of duty. I mean, that, that just gives you an idea about the kind of human being Schindler was. And I can tell you that if I brought somebody like Schindler here and a Nazi, you know, who's true Nazi believer on one side, to, on one side and Schindler, somebody like Schindler on the, on the other side, if you looked at him, you could guess which is, who is who. We just can tell, you know, there was nothing behind those Nazi eyes while, while as Schindler, you know, when you talked to Schindler, when he talked to us, he talked in complete sentences and he waited for an answer and you said good evening and good night and stuff like that. You know, you just Nazis just didn't do that. They just grunted. All they said, you know, single word commands. After all, we were not human. You don't talk to non-humans in complete sentences. Well, Schindler was able to accomplish that, as you know from the from the movie, and you also know that. Uh, You also know that the, the women, when they were transferred to uh, Schindler's, while on the way to Schindler's company, they were diverted to Auschwitz. When the men went to Schindler's company, we were diverted to another, another camp, just like Auschwitz, called Grossrosen. And we experienced about, about the same kind of thing in Grossrosen as the women did in Auschwitz, but in the movie they only showed the, the women's side. And I guess, you know, when you show a movie and you show 
it wouldn't be too interesting to see a whole bunch of naked men, you know. So they show the women. Anyway, I must tell you this, though, before I know it's, we're running short of time and you've been sitting very patiently. Um, when the women were taken to Auschwitz, they had to go through a selection where a man was standing receiving the group and he would decide who's going to live and who's going to die. And so when my mother, by the way, my sister was added to the list because my mother asked, my father asked Shinda to add my sister. So she was with her mother at, in Auschwitz and they were approaching this man and my sister was sent to the right to live and my mother to the other side to die because she was just a waste, you know, not worth anything. So she was already in the barracks awaiting the gas chamber. When Schindler discovered that not all the women on his list were being sent to his company, he went and spent more of his money and persuaded them to put everyone who was on his list and they should be sent to his company. So with that, my mother was taken out of the barracks where she was awaiting the gas chamber and she joined the women that was sent to Shinda's company. Can you, can you imagine that? I want to tell you, you, you probably understand that some of you that are young students here, you'd have to ask your parents about this or your grandparents. But in 1944, this, was, this is when that happened. In 1944, my, my mother was 42. Sorry, too old. Of course, she was beat up emotionally, physically. When she the, the time we spent in a in a camp, she was beaten and she she couldn't she couldn't perform her duties as a as a parent, a very dedicated parent, but she couldn't do anything. My parents suffered a lot more than we did as children. Because they had a responsibility. They couldn't help themselves and they couldn't help us either. But we went, uh, we all ended up in, in Shinda's company and uh, for the next eight months. Those, those eight months were pretty hard. The soup was thinner, the, smell, the rations were smaller. Shinra couldn't uh, provide, sup, supplement our rations as, as the way he did in Poland. And... Um, as I said, if the war had lasted much longer, none of us would have survived. So I, um, I want to leave you with this. In my, my opinion, Schindler, as I mentioned before, did what you might call a heroic deed in, in, within the context of the times. And I have a, a definition of a hero that I would like to leave you with. That... Uh, I borrowed from uh, Joseph Campbell, from the power of myth. Joseph Campbell was being interviewed some time ago, and I was listening to what he was saying, and I was watching TV. And I overheard this thing that just clicked, and I knew this definition of a hero, of a mythical hero, fits Schindler perfectly. And so to paraphrase that, uh, what he said uh, when he described the mythical hero was that 
A hero is an ordinary human being who does the best of things in the worst of times. And I thought, that can't, you know, that's a perfect definition of what Shindra did. He did the best of things, and the times could not have been possibly worse. And so, as you know, after the war, he didn't do very well in business. And when he was leaving, you know, the... It's true, in, in the movie you saw he was given a, a ring that we made out of uh, somebody's gold tooth, and in, inside it was inscribed with uh, an old Talmudic saying, which says that he who saves one life saves the world entire. And that was appropriate for Schindler, because when you think about how many people he really saved, uh, when you say, well, 1,200 there's no telling if you think about all the future generations that will come because of what Schindler did. So now I thank you very much for being patient. And I, I'll take questions if you are so inclined. Huh? I would take the last question, but first I would like to thank you on behalf of the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute for being here today. And the last question is, how and when were you bar mitzvahed? <laughs> you know, I was in Schindler's company by the time I was uh, 13. My voice changed, I knew that. But yeah, I used to, you know, when I was a child, uh, even in, in Narevka, I, I had a really good voice. I was a soprano, you know. <laughs> and so people would ask me, you know, on Sabbath, people would sit around the porches and they would ask me to sing songs. So I could I sing and I carry a tune and and then uh, uh, sometime during the period in Shindra's company, my voice changed, and then I knew I was bar mitzvah. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.